You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. On August 28, 430 AD, as a Vandal army lay in siege around his beloved city, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo Regius, died and left Christendom a legacy. In the centuries that followed, this legacy profoundly shaped the Western Church, for he bequeathed to her large books with even larger ideas, from the depths of sin to the heights of divine providence, from the breadth of all temporal history to the measureless eternity of the ineffable Trinity. A Christian today could easily be intimidated by this legacy. How could such a theological giant be relevant to our little lives? Yet, as Gerald Bray reminds us, Augustine, too, was a believer in Jesus, just like us, and a pastor to regular people. He has much to say about the ordinary life of the Christian, about conversion, about relationships, about our personal devotion through prayer and the scriptures, and about our life in Christ's church. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Gerald Bray, Research Professor of Divinity, History, and Doctrine at Beeson Divinity School, and author of Augustine on the Christian Life, Transformed by the Power of God, published by Crossway. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Bray. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Well, we'll get into it. Um, it's kind of a funny coincidence, but the first interview that I ever did for Christian Humanist Profiles was with Fred Sanders about his book, Wesley on the Christian Life, and your book is part of that same series. Now, with other volumes on Calvin and Owen, Edwards, Warfield, Schaefer, this series has a definitely Protestant and distinctly Reformed flavor. So it seems appropriate to me to ask you a question that I also had for, for Sanders. Why choose Augustine for this series? Well, that's a very good question, and probably I'm not the best person to ask because I was asked <laughs> to write about him uh, by somebody who had already made the choice, if you see what I mean. It wasn't that <laughs> I offered to do that. Um, I suspect it's true that, that the other people who are being written about are uh, other, as you say, Reformed Protestant uh, background. Um, they're also obviously... Uh, Reformation and post-Reformation, so relatively modern, uh, and therefore there's quite a lot of material uh, by them and about them um, readily available. I mean, they, uh, you know, they they lived since the invention of printing, um, mm. and so their their uh, works and so on have generally been preserved, sometimes at great length. Augustine also exists in a fairly large quantity. Uh, from the ancient world, but of course uh, these things are relative. I mean, uh, since everything had to be copied out by hand, um, there is, although there's quite a lot, uh, there's not an enormous amount, um, as there might be with a modern figure. Uh, things like Protestantism, of course, don't apply. Um, in his case, he wouldn't have done what you were talking about if you uh, <laughs> said something like that. Um, but uh, he is a, a suitable person to be dealing with because he's really the first person um, in uh, in, the Christ, in Christian history uh, who has left us uh, a considerable legacy about himself. 
yeah. and his own uh, his own conversion, his spiritual journey, his um, his ideas, and so on. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's possible to write uh, a kind of book about you know his his life and and his and his thoughts. Um, in a way that many ancient figures uh, escape us, you know, we 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 don't really know enough about them um, to be able to do the same thing. So, in that sense, he fits into the series, I think, quite well. Mm. I I tried to uh, I tried to think of of other figures earlier than than Augustine that one could that one could include in this series and. Uh, and, and frankly, came up dry. Um, certainly for well, that's right. I mean, the, the <laughs> people like, for example, Tertullian, who has left us a considerable body of, uh, of material, um, but we don't really know much about him as a person. Mm. Uh, Origen in the Eastern Church also wrote a great deal, probably as much as Augustine himself. Uh, but unfortunately, most of it has been lost. So, uh, you know, we, we're guessing uh, much of the time. Mm. Yes, Augustine is, is unique in the ancient world in, in that respect. Mm. Well, I guess we should start with uh, a little sh- uh, brief biography, at least, since uh, his life is so much a part of um, y- your, your, your presentation of his thought in this, pr- in this book. So could you give us a, a quick sketch or a, a quick outline of Augustine's life for the rest of the conversation to build on? Yes, uh, he was born in a small town in North Africa uh, in the year 354. Uh, at that time, uh, Christianity had become a legal religion. Um, uh, it, had, it had been legalized a generation or so before, uh, and uh, there were plenty of Christians around, um, but it had not yet become the state religion. It wasn't the official religion of the Roman Empire, uh, with the result that uh, you have a lot of people who uh, who sat on the fence, really. Uh, I mean, they, they, they might not have been anti-Christian, but they weren't necessarily Christians themselves. Mm. Uh, and this was a situation in which Augustine was born. I mean, his father was a pagan. Uh, his mother was Christian. Uh, we don't know the circumstances in which they, they married, but probably um, her parents would have done the arranging. And um, if her parents were Christian, it's not altogether clear why they would have uh, betrothed her to, a, to somebody who was not a believer. Um, but somehow or other, that seems to have happened. And, uh, and yet, uh, Augustine's father did not prevent um, his son from being taken to church, for example, and being taught the Christian faith by his mother. Um, one thing she could not do uh, was officially uh, enroll him in the church. I mean, she, Augustine could not be baptized, uh, for example, without his father's permission um, mm. when he was a child, and that wasn't forthcoming. Uh, so Augustine is one of these people who grew up knowing a lot about the church uh, and Christianity, but uh, not committed to it. And when he was 16, uh, he went off to Carthage, the the main city of North Africa, uh, for what we would today call a university education. Um, While he was there, uh, of course, he he threw himself into the the life of the city. Uh, He took a mistress, 
uh, to whom he was remarkably faithful. It was the great love of his life in many ways. Um, he had a son uh, by her. He must have been still very young uh, when the son was born. Uh, and, and they lived together for a long time. I mean, for, you know, it was 16, 17 years at least, mm. uh, while Augustine uh, studied and then became a teacher in, uh, in Carthage. Uh, when he was in his late 20s, his early 30s, he realized that um, his career was uh, really uh, at a difficult point. I mean, he'd, he'd done everything that he could um, in, in Carthage itself, and the only sort of way uh, forward for him if he wanted to um, you know, have a wider career or, or whatever was to go to Rome, mm. um, which he did. Um, and set up shop there, but uh, he wasn't very successful because he'd come from uh, what to the Romans was a fairly remote province, and um, and he didn't really adjust to the, the life of the city very well. Uh, but he moved on to Milan in northern Italy, which is where the emperor was uh, living at that stage, and uh, it was there uh, that he came uh, under the uh, influence of Ambrose, um, mm. the bishop of, of Milan, uh, and he went to Ambrose's uh, sermons out of curiosity, really, um, because Augustine had dabbled uh, in philosophy and spirituality of various kinds. He'd been associated with the Manichees, which is a, a, a sect which uh, believed that good and evil were, were equal and competing forces. Um, and he, he'd, he'd been quite uh, deeply involved uh, with them, although he, he never really joined uh, them uh, officially, but uh, you know, he moved in those circles. Hmm. Uh, but it was under the teaching of Ambrose and the influence of Ambrose that uh, he started reading the Bible, and uh, gradually the message uh, of the New Testament sank in uh, to him, and um, he had a spiritual crisis, uh, and uh, it was uh, in reading Romans 13, towards the end of Romans 13, um, where uh, Paul says that uh, we are to live, uh, you know, not a, uh, in uh, dissipation, not in an evil life, uh, but uh, consecrate ourselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, but this just struck him and went, went straight to his heart. Um, uh, and he, he gave in. He became a Christian at that point. Um, uh, then he uh, went back to North Africa, uh, and uh, after a few years of not really being too certain what he was going to do, um, he went to Hippo at the request of the bishop there. Mm. And when he arrived, uh, the bishop, the local bishop, I suppose you would say today, had tricked him in a way, uh, <laughs> because... Well, it's hard to say, you know, I mean, but, but he, he designated Augustine as his successor uh, and more or less forced him to stay, and Augustine spent the rest of his life there. Um, uh, he, he took over and uh, he, he taught and preached uh, on a daily basis um, for over 30 years um, in uh, this rather remote North African port city. Uh, and. Uh, it was really from there that uh, his influence gradually began to spread. Uh, within North Africa itself, um, uh, he took a, a leading role in church affairs. He, uh, he attended 
um, synods in, in Carthage where he, uh, he spoke and um, had a considerable influence um, in attacking the, the various schismatic groups and heresies that were uh, floating around at that time. Um, and, of course, we have a lot of his writings dealing with that sort of thing. Uh, but that's basically it. I mean, the, the adventures ceased, and he, he stayed in pretty much the same place for, for the last part of his life. Until his until his death in 430. Well, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, which is which is also a, a particular point too, because the Vandals were coming, and he could have chosen, as some other churchmen did, to not be in Hippo when the Vandals arrived. Well, uh, yes. Although at that time the the barbarians were, were overrunning most of the Western Roman Empire, and uh, I think it would have been difficult for him to find anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, there, there there wasn't really a safe haven. Ah. Well, one of the points that you frequently make in your book is that the sources of Augustine's life that we have need to be uh, we we need to understand what kinds of sources they are and how best to weigh their testimony in order yes. to get a a kind of historical view from them particularly uh, the Confessions and uh, the life by uh, Pisidius, if I remember correctly. Pisidius, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Mm-hmm. So how much, can I, how much can we trust the Confessions in Pisidius, or in what way should we, what kind of true story should we, we be looking for them to tell, if that makes sense? Uh, well, um, the... Uh, the confessions, of course, are autobiographical. He's telling mm-hmm. his own life story. Um, we have little choice but to trust them because we have no external sources against which to to measure them. Right. Uh, the, the the difficulty, I think, is that, uh, and we see this in ourselves. I mean, uh, if we were to write a story of our own lives. Um, First of all, we, we would be able to say things about ourselves uh, that nobody else would know. I mean, uh, you know, private uh, experiences, dreams, uh, you know, this kind of thing um, uh, that other people wouldn't know anything about unless we happen to tell them, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is, of course, I- important. But if we do this, of course, we're, we're selecting out what we remember, what is important to us uh, for various reasons. Um, and uh, and that's fine, uh, but uh, of course, in, in, in an outside observer uh, of of our lives, uh, might would not notice, or, or or maybe wouldn't think that that sort of thing was terribly important. Um, so it's it's difficult to know, uh, especially since other things, which again to uh, to outsiders might seem to be much more important, like. Um, you know, relationships with his parents, relationships with with his teachers, and so on. Um, these things, although they're mentioned from time to time, uh, we have no real way mm-hmm. um, uh, of gauging, uh, you know, what what their true significance is or was. So uh, we we are limited to what Augustine is prepared to tell us about himself. Now, Posidius, who wrote his biography after his death um, 
of course, he saw and knew a great deal about Augustine, and, and I, I don't think there's much to doubt as far as the actual facts are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, the difficulty with, with Pasidius is that uh, he was a disciple, an admirer, uh, and so everything Augustine did is fine, um, <laughs> you, you know, and uh, and just doesn't really see anything uh, anything negative. And uh, again, it's a question really of, of selectivity. I mean, uh, you know, Placidius has, has chosen um, to tell us what he wants us to know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's difficult to. to uh, find any any other source against which these things can be checked. Right. We don't have some kind of Donatist life of Augustine that's pushing back at uh, the sources we have got. No, that's right. And and there's no uh, real uh, uh, account you see from somebody who who might be considered neutral, mm-hmm. or at least you know fairly objective. Well, one thing at least uh, in your in in your discussion of of Augustine's conversion, and you just uh, you just talked about in uh, in his confessions how intensely personal they are, and how yes. how this incredibly personal event that other people might not witness or regard as important, um, he makes phenomenally important. Um, you confirmed something that I'd wondered about which is that Augustine's conversion is, um, after Paul's, uh, really the, the, the major model in church history for a conversion narrative. Why has Augustine's conversion story been so influential? How does his understanding of his, of his conversion influence us? I think it's been influential, first of all, because of its detail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear a lot of people who become Christians, but you don't really know anything about the circumstances or how they felt at the time or their inner spiritual struggle or anything like this. I mean, mm-hmm. you're quite right that, you know, the Apostle Paul is a is a model from the New Testament. Um, but it's interesting when you look at the New Testament that really he's the only one. Right. Um, you know, most of the other New Testament characters, even prominent people like Peter or John, um, we don't really know when they became Christians. I mean, Jesus chose them as uh, his disciples and so on, but, you know, and they kind of went up and down, especially Peter. Um, and, and we do know something about his, his spiritual journey, but we don't really hear it from him. Mm. Uh, and I think Augustine is, is different in this way, that uh, not only does he tell us, you know, give us a blow-by-blow account um, uh, of how he came to Christ, uh, but uh, says a great deal, uh, which the Apostle Paul doesn't really, um, about his pre-Christian life, um, mm. uh, you know, his education and his, his, his upbringing and so on. And so uh, I think people can identify with this. Uh, you, you know, that Augustine comes across as a, uh, as a rounded human being, uh, by no means perfect, um, which again is attractive. You know, he, mm-hmm. uh, people feel that Augustine is not somebody, you know, way above any anything they could ever achieve, um, and therefore somebody to be admired but not imitated. Um, and I think a lot of people have found in different ways uh, their own spiritual experience mirrored um, uh, in his. Uh, you know, maybe not totally, but 
uh, enough that they can they can uh, sense uh, a connection with him, um, and you know they they sense that even after his, his profession of faith, uh, he didn't have a smooth ride. I mean, uh, there were issues that had to be sorted out, like his concubine and so on, and. Uh, you know, a lot of people recognize this, you see, from their own experience, that, you know, becoming a Christian, while it's a wonderful experience uh, in, in one way, uh, does mean you have to change your life around, and that is not always a straightforward thing to do. Mm. Would Augustine have considered his his conversion experience to be normative in some sense? Would he have expected every Christian to be able to tell a story like his? No, I don't think so. Um, the way he writes, uh, you know, uh, about it is very intense. It's very much his own um, uh, walk with God. And, of course, the, the confessions are unique in that they are addressed to God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're a kind of dialogue with God. Um and other, pe- other people come into it. I mean, it's not that they're totally absent from it. Uh, but I think one of the things that comes across is that even his close friend, Olypius, who, who had a, a parallel experience, you might say, uh, and the two men, you know, were baptized together and so on. Um, nevertheless, Augustine, you know, points out Olypius is a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and had different struggles and you know different uh, approaches to various things. So uh, he was aware that uh, everyone has to come to Christ in his own way, and that God deals with us, uh, you know, as we are. He takes us where we are, and, and that this will not be the same for everyone. So um, he obviously was writing in order to encourage people, you know, and, and, and say, well, look, this is what happened to me, and I'm just sharing it with you. But it's not a sort of didactic manual. Um, you know, you, you, God has a, a wonderful plan for your life and, you know, wants you to know the following four things, and um, hmm. you sort of follow, you, you go through it step by step. It's not like that. Hmm. One of the things that you bring up is that he doesn't connect regeneration, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring a dead, a, uh, a dead spirit to life. Um, he doesn't connect regeneration to conversion in quite the way that um, I think modern evangelicals are, are accustomed to. So, oh, that's right. Yes, uh, it's 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 really very strange for us because we we can read his conversion experience and sympathize with him all the way. Um, you know, and say, yes, 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 that's absolutely right, that's what, you know, uh, what happens. Um, but then he, he sort of gets up from, you know, prying his way through to uh, surrendering to Christ, um, and says to his friend Olypius, well, now we need to go to church and get baptized so that we can be born again. Um, <laughs> which, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, to us is very jarring, because we mm. think to ourselves, but hang on a minute, you have just been born again, you know, what do you think you're doing? Um, now, partly, of course, this is uh, a difference of, of uh, theological perception and vocabulary that um, we would still today 
uh, expect people to go and join the church if they, you know, after they were converted. And of course, if they were unbaptized, that they should be baptized. I mean, it's not the procedure that's the the problem. Um, it's it's really the, uh, the the theological interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wouldn't today associate uh, regeneration uh, with baptism in the way that Augustine did. Um, I mean, I don't think there's anybody, in the, at least in the Protestant world, who would seriously say that um, if you are baptized, you know, being baptized is how you get to be born again. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, I mean, partly, I think one of the reasons for this, of course, is that um, we have lived through centuries of, uh, uh, of ba- what I might call baptismal abuse, the abuse of baptism. Mm. Um, you know, when people are just baptized right, left, and center um, uh, without any real uh, commitment of faith, either they're baptized as infants or even not. I mean, they could, you know, they're brought up in a Christian family and so on. They may make a profession of faith when they're young, but um, it doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's what's it's expected of them. Um, and so we're quite, I suppose, if I can put it this way, uh, we're rather cynical about this kind of thing. I mean, mm. uh, you know, if I if I said to you, uh, when did you become a Christian? And you turned to me and said, well, I was baptized on whatever day it was, I would turn back to you and say, that's not what I asked. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and in fact, would probably doubt whether you were converted at all, because why would you answer in that way? Um, but this is because, as I say, of centuries of experience of people who are uh, baptized but who are clearly not believers. Mm. Um, in, in Augustine's day, uh, I'm sure there were such people around, of course, but uh, the, the, the distinction between the world and the church was, was much clearer, and people who, people who didn't have a faith uh, would not normally go and get baptized. Uh, I mean, it, it hadn't become socially uh, normative to that degree. Mm. Though he was a strong advocate for uh, the baptism of the the infant children of Christian parents, would would oh, he yes. have, would he have expected a baptized inf- uh, someone who was baptized of an, as an infant to have a conversion experience similar to his? Well, that's of course a very interesting question, um, and and one of the questions that is not really addressed in in, in so many words. Uh, uh-huh. It would have uh, it would have been very difficult, I suppose, for him to have denied that because it was true of him, um, uh, in a sense. Although, uh, of course, he had not been baptized as a child. Now, uh, he does talk about this in passing. He says that at one point when he was a young boy, he he caught a fever and very nearly died. Uh, and his mother was about to overrule his father and have him baptized sort of on his deathbed. Um, uh, but the, he, the, the fever abated and he recovered, and so it didn't happen. So I suppose the question would be, had it happened? I mean, had Augustine been baptized when he was eight or nine years old, say, and then um, recovered from his illness, uh, would that have made him a Christian? Uh, in in the true sense of the word, uh, you know, would he have had a conversion experience later? And uh, the, the impression we are given, of course, is that 
he would have been a Christian and he wouldn't have had to go through all the uh, traumas that he that he did later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, probably that's true, but he would have thought that way. Um, but of course, it's one of those great unanswerable questions. We don't know. Hmm. Well, it's it's one that I worried about, uh, not worried, <laughs> wondered about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not personally... Uh, Presbyterian, though uh, I've attended a Presbyterian church in the past mm-hmm. and have a number of Presbyterian friends, and mm-hmm. a number of them will testify of themselves and express the desire for their children that they never remember a time when they didn't when they didn't love Jesus and believe in Him. And right. uh, it, I, I, I was wondering as I was reading about Augustine's conversion and his importance to the way we think about conversion today mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. what Augustine might have said to that uh, to that idea well I'm sure he would have been in favor of that uh, mm-hmm. you know and would have expected that mm-hmm. uh, that Christian parents would bring up their children in, 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 in that the way you've just described um, and I mean there are people like that you know people who are brought up in Christian families who certainly have, have never doubted it and, and so on that's fine um, but in a way, they're not the problem. The problem are those who have had the same kind of background, uh, but who one way or another have rebelled against it, mm-hmm. um, and and have demonstrated that they're obviously not Christians. You know, they rejected it, um, and this is this is a, a a major problem, you might say, in our society and in, mm-hmm. in the modern world generally, um, and has been for the last couple of centuries. Uh, but it's something that I suppose it, it, for Augustine hadn't really occurred on such a scale mm-hmm. um, as, as to be, be a, a, a major spiritual problem. Um, and I think today, I mean, it's not for me to uh, to criticize, but uh, you know, Presbyterians or Lutherans or whatever um, obviously have to consider that. Uh, they can't just let their children grow up, um, you know, and, and, and assume that because they're baptized they're going to be okay. I mean, uh, you know, they, they still have to expect um, a, a profession of faith, and that is what confirmation, the right of confirmation, is at least theoretically supposed to ensure. Mm. Earlier on, and shifting, <laughs> shifting topic, which I, I would love to talk about that for the rest of the time because it's been it's been uh-huh. on my mind. But you mentioned earlier on how conversion makes your life complicated because it's not just um, a new faith, but it often in, entails changes of behavior. And yes, the role that, uh, frankly, the role that sexual relations play in Augustine's story before his conversion and after his conversion, it's one of those biographical elements that really highlights um, the difference between his culture and his values and those that modern evangelicals kind of assume to be natural. What do we need to understand in order to view those parts of his story rightly and, I guess, charitably? Right. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, to the modern mind, uh, Augustine was a normal person until he became converted, and then he started having sexual problems. Um, <laughs> you know, that's how, <laughs> that's how it appears to us. Um, 
because he was happily uh, living together with his concubine. Um, although it's very interesting that, uh, you see, one of the things he never mentions is her name. Mm-hmm. He talks about his father and mother, he talks about his son, uh, gives their names and so on, and all his various friends. Uh, but this concubine is never named. Uh, and this, I think, is significant because uh, it shows something of the way in which, uh, you know, what we would think of as marital relations or sexual relations were conceived, uh, if I can use that expression, um, uh, you know, in, in the ancient world. And uh, it was quite common for, for a man of Augustine's kind um, to take a mistress. I mean, this was, this was the norm rather than the exception. Mm. Um, and uh, it was assumed that at some point uh, he would marry. Um, but marriage, of course, in the ancient world, especially in the Roman world, uh, was much more of a business uh, thing um, uh, than, than a love affair. In fact, the ancients were, were very afraid of love, because uh, of sexual love, because it, it tended to interfere uh, with finance. You know, um, people fell in love with, with the wrong kind of person, people with someone with no money or something like this. And we, we have to think not of our culture, but uh, of what still goes on in large parts of the third world, of, you know, sort of Africa and Asia and so on. Um, where marriage is something that the family organizes uh, that is usually centered around uh, concepts of dowry and, um, you know, alliances between families and this kind of thing, um, that would be strange in our culture. I mean, we tend to be much more individualistic, and uh, while it's certainly not true that parents are always thrilled about their their children's choices of of a life partner, um, the idea of interfering and breaking it up um, and, and so on, I mean, it, it happens, I suppose, now and again, but we tend to think of that as, uh, as rather extreme and wrong. Whereas for Augustine, of course, this was not the case at all. I mean, mm. um, his mother desperately wanted him to get married, but as far as she was concerned, um, there was no question whatsoever that he would marry uh, a, a mere concubine. I mean, who you know, the, this would be socially unacceptable. Uh, Augustine's wife had to be somebody uh, of a similar social standing to himself um, in order to be accepted. Um, you know, within the circles in which he moved, and 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 Augustine himself accepted that. I mean, he understood that's what marriage was, and. Um, of course, one of the saddest things uh, uh, when we read his uh, account was that he, he gave up his concubine um, because he, he wanted to obey his mother and get married in the right way. Um, you see, today we would simply say, well, marry your concubine. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been living with her for goodness knows how long. I mean, she is your wife, and it's all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, just bring it, bring it into the open and, and give it to God. Um, but that's not the way he saw it. The other thing is, uh, I suppose, that um, he realized that uh, the, taking a concubine in the first place was part of his youthful rebellion, mm. um, you know, and, uh, and so when he became a Christian, uh, this issue uh, resurfaced, that, that uh, he felt increasingly that he had done the wrong thing um, 
years before, and that uh, this was a side of uh, a side of his life uh, that had to be uh, uprooted um, if he was truly going to follow the Lord. Now, again, um, you know this seems odd to us, but uh, that's the way he felt, and uh, it's something that was deeply personal to him. Uh, he wasn't against marriage as such. I mean, uh, you know, he, he, did, he didn't think that all Christians should be celibate or that if the Christians were married, they should divorce in order to uh, consecrate themselves to God. I mean, uh, he never pushed things to that degree. Uh, but in his own uh, life, uh, you know, he thought, well, uh, in sorting out his previous uh, sinful behavior, uh, that was one of the things that, that he, he in, in, in his own self, uh, felt he had to do. Mm. Um, and I suppose uh, that's just very individual, and uh, it's extremely hard for us to, uh, uh, to pass judgment on this. Mm. You mentioned earlier that he had sort of been on the, on the outside of, of uh, Manichaeism. He had been associated yes. with it, but never had uh, fully converted, I guess. Would, right. he, would he have had to be celibate to be a Manichae? No, um, uh, no, oh no, I mean, in fact, okay. he was a Manichae, you see, all the time when he was with his concubine. Ah, okay. So, um, <laughs> the, you know, and in fact, one of the things that, that uh, he criticized the Manichaeans for mm -hmm. was, uh, was this, because logically, you might say, Manichaeism should have promoted celibacy, yes, because, uh, you know, material things were evil and so on. Uh, and in theory it did, but in practice, uh, as Augustine said, it, it actually led uh, to a, a life of immorality because good mm. and evil were equal forces. Um, you know, it wasn't as if you had to prefer one over the other. Uh, and uh, so they could sort of flip back and forth from, you know, uh, from the purely spiritual to the, to the grossly material. Mm. Um, uh, without really noticing and, and and he said that's what they did uh, you know that that uh, they led double lives because they were dualists mm. philosophical dualists I, I wondered if uh, if things had worked out the same way in Manichaean, Manichaean sexual ethics the way they did in the uh, with the Albigensians or the Cathars with their, uh -huh. their their top tier being strictly vegetarian and celibate Yes. Okay. Well, that that that's uh, I mean that's certainly you know what uh, they did, but of course you're talking there about Manichaeism, you know, 800 years later. Okay. Um, and in a different context, but yes, I mean that's uh, you know that's what they should have been, but they weren't. Okay. Another one of the ways that um, Augustine's. Uh, personal devotional life and uh, as, a, as a teacher, uh, a, something that I think evangelicals today will resonate with is his high regard for the Bible in both of those, in both of those ways. Mm -hmm. But I think, too, that we can be baffled or even alienated by the ways that he reads and interprets the Bible. Um, uh -huh. So, you know, again, this is one of those areas where I think we need to understand Augustine and his times and his thought better in order to in order to value him rightly if that makes sense 
So Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, you see, Augustine was in a very difficult position because on the one hand, um, he believed that the Bible was the Word of God, that um, uh, you know, it had been, been given by God, that it was what we would call today, I suppose, infallible, inerrant, all that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it was God speaking to, to human beings um, and had a very sort of high view of Scripture and also that Christian theology um, mm. is essentially the interpretation of Scripture. I mean, his book on the subject, uh, you know, is called On Christian Doctrine, uh, but it's really uh, interpreting Scripture, how it, how it should be read. So that's one side of, of things, the, theor- the theoretical side, you might say. The practical problem um, that he faced, or problems that he faced, um, was that he didn't really have uh, a reliable text of Scripture uh, available to him. Mm. Um, he didn't know Hebrew, of course, but then very few people did. So uh, they used the Greek translation, the Septuagint translation, uh, for the Old Testament. Um, but, uh, of course, the Septuagint translation is uh, very variable. It's by no means uh, always a faithful rendering of the Hebrew. So that's one issue uh, that has to be dealt with. But, uh, of course, it was also in Greek, and Augustine's Greek wasn't very good. Mm. So, uh, you know, he, he had sort of to rely on various Latin translations. And... Um, and these were just, you know, done by goodness knows who uh, <laughs> at different times, and uh, were not necessarily accurate at all. Um, the new in the New Testament, the same thing. Of course, it was originally in Greek, um, but Augustine read it in in Latin translations, not all of which were accurate. Um, and this was actually a problem uh, that was understood uh, in his own lifetime. I mean, uh, uh, because. Uh, in Rome, um, I mean, one of the popes, a man called Damasus, was so bothered by this um, that he, he got to Rome, um, you know, a great scholar of the time, uh, to do a Latin translation, a fresh translation. Mm. Um, Jerome did from the Hebrew and from the Greek of the New Testament. Now, Jerome was a, 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 an excellent biblical scholar and um, produced a wonderful translation, the Latin Vulgate. Um, I mean, today we tend to be a bit sniffy about the Vulgate because, uh, of course, it wasn't you know, based on uh, a wide range of manuscripts and so on. Uh, but given the, the limitations of his time, um, I mean, Jerome did a wonderful job. I mean, you know, he, he was mm. very active. He, he saw the importance of Hebrew and uh, over the Greek. He went back to the original and, and, and all this, you see. So it was quite good. Um, but this only appeared during Augustine's lifetime. And, mm. and of course, he didn't really use it um, and, and argued with, with Jerome. I mean, there's a correspondence with Jerome over this, you see, over the translation of the Bible. Um, because Augustine didn't really see why you had to go back to the Hebrew in the Old Testament. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, because he said the New Testament quotes the, the Greek Old Testament, and therefore the Greek Old Testament must be divinely inspired uh, along with the Hebrew, so why bother with the Hebrew? I mean, that was his way of, of thinking. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, his... his, his uh, 
interpretation, of course, that the text suffers accordingly. Uh, the saving grace, and I've tried to point this out in, in uh, my book, is that although his detailed exegesis of particular verses is often um, uh, incorrect, and not necessarily because uh, you know he he wasn't reading them. Uh, well, what he was reading, he he misinterpreted uh, directly. Not usually that. It's that the text he was reading was already a misinterpretation mm. translation. You see, that's that was the real problem. Um, and uh, Augustine's genius really was that. He understood the gospel, the, the, the theological principles on which the text was supposed to be based, and so managed to uh, use the right interpretive grid, you might say, um, uh, you know, to get the to get the right message out of the text, uh, even if it wasn't exactly what uh, what the original said. Mm. So, in some ways, his 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 theological interpretation particularly over the question of sin, for example, original sin and so on, um, uh, is, is better than his exegesis. It's not a, a method we would recommend today, uh, <laughs> of course, but, um, but in the circumstances, it's amazing how, uh, I think you just have to say, how God overrules uh, the limitations which Augustine was uh, forced to put up with. Mm. Well, I think you show, too, that um, Augustine doesn't end up with readings that modern evangelicals would find odd because necessarily because he doesn't value detailed exegesis or because he has um, incredibly inappropriate methods, but uh, he's 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 valuing he is valuing a close reading of the text as it stands. Um, yes, but he's he's working with a text that has problems that. He can't. Um, he can't work with in a way of Jerome can. That's right. Um, you know, he was doing the best he could with the limitations that he was forced to endure, mm. um, and it, it wasn't willful misinterpretation on his part. Right. Well, moving from the the interpretation of the word to the preaching of the word, I've got to say that your your fourth chapter was probably my favorite in the book. Augustine oh. the pastor, um, mm -hmm. mainly because I kept reading bits of his sermons um, and your your discussion of it uh, to my wife. Uh, I inflicted a good chunk of that chapter on her. She was very patient. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So if you could describe for us, what was Augustine like as a preacher? What was it like to be present for one of his sermons so that we can kind of imagine ourselves into an Augustine of Hippo simulcast or whatever? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's another very interesting question, because, of course, we only know what, what the preacher thought, not what the audience thought, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and uh, judging, I mean, Augustine does talk about his congregation, so, you know, quite frequently. Um, he preached on a daily basis, so... Mm. Uh, of course, to to get the full measure of what he was saying, um, he would have had to go to to church quite a bit, um, uh, and we know, of course, that uh, from the content of what he said that uh, if he'd gone on too long and you know the day daylight was going, because of course you couldn't really um, uh, do things in the dark, um, 
he would just simply say, well, I'm stopping here now, come back tomorrow and I'll continue, you know. So uh, the expectation was there that people would uh, would return for more um, and, and follow through on the argument. I mean, it wasn't preaching in the modern sense, um, uh, you know, where, where the preacher is expected, A, to come to a conclusion, mm. uh, and B, to, uh, to challenge his hearers, you know, make like each sermon is meant to stand on its own, even if it's part of the series. So uh, it's hard to know what people would make of it. Um, he, Augustine himself, to the extent that he talks about it, um, rather suggests that very few people were interested. <laughs> uh, you know, that uh, attendance at his sermons was not, great, was not high. Um, People, uh, Augustine complains that they, you know, they had other things to do, and um, uh, that uh, you know, people just weren't weren't coming to church in the way that they should, and weren't listening uh, to him um, with the attentiveness that that uh, he desired, and so on. We know this, of course, because of the things he says. Um, you know, he he rebukes them, upbraids them. So I suppose if you went in, if you just dropped in to hear Augustine talking, you, you might um, get an earful, uh, you know, of condemnation for uh, <laughs> not having not having been there for a while, um, <laughs> and therefore, you know, not being able to follow what he was saying. Um, that's the impression we get. Um, but, of course, again, as with so many things, uh, it's hard to say, because although we have several hundred sermons uh, of his, I mean, you know, over 500 have survived. Um, he probably preached about 10,000 uh, in in the course of his life. So, uh, you know, we're we're dealing with maybe five percent um, uh, of what he of what he originally preached. And uh, you know, we have very little way of knowing why or how that particular five percent survived. Was it because uh, people thought that was the, the best 5%. Uh, you know, was it just chance that they had, somebody happened to be there, take notes down or, uh, or whatever, you know, on that particular thing um, and, and not other things? Uh, would the sermons that have uh, been lost, uh, would they have given us a different impression uh, of him? We don't know. Um, uh, you know, did he say the same thing over and over again? Again, you know, we have no way of telling. Mm. So um, there, there are lots of limitations on this, you see. Uh, and because of this, as of what sermons are, um, you know, they, they are engagement uh, with uh, hearers, essentially an oral communication. And, and we can only read them or read uh, you know the notes really. Um, it's extremely difficult to say uh, what sort of impact they would have had, uh, and there must be a lot in them uh, that would refer to things uh, that the hearers would know about, but uh, that escape us because uh, you know we, we we're not living in their situation. So um, even if you know, we read them now and we think, oh, this is interesting or this is boring or whatever we think about it. Um, you know, it's hard to be, to connect our feelings um, 
with what was going on uh, in the in the original setting. Hmm. Well, one of the things that you bring out about the original setting is just the the physical conditions of listening to him preach that you would be standing oh, yes. up that it would be incredibly hot because it is north africa and and so yeah. forth yes oh yes and no uh, no air conditioning uh no um uh, microphones uh and of course no powerpoint either <laughs> so i think i think modern modern church goers you know might not stay very long <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite Augustine preaching story? You tell you share a number of little anecdotes in this particular chapter. Do you have a favorite? Uh, no, not really a favorite. I mean, I think as as a preacher myself, I I sympathize with with the um, you know the complaints he makes about people not listening, <laughs> uh, prefer, prefer, preferring to go off to the theater instead, mm. and that rings a bell because you. You know, I go around preaching a lot in different places, and uh, not infrequently, um, you know, people say something like, "Feel free to say what you like, but you know, and don't go beyond twenty minutes." Um, <laughs> and and of course, the subtext is we want to get to lunch, or we've got other things to do. And you know, while we're happy to listen to you, we don't want to overdo it. Um, and so when Augustine sort of says things like that about his own congregations, I think, well, nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's kind of kind of encouraging in a way. Um, you know, if a great man like that had to face this sort of uh, problem, uh, who are we to complain? Mm. This is not in your. Uh, this is not in that chapter, but one of my favorite uh, little bits from Pisidius's life is when uh, Augustine asks his disciples uh, later in the week about whether or not they noticed the fact that he had um, gotten off point <laughs> in a sermon and chased yeah. chased a rabbit. Manichaeanism had come up, and he had just finished the sermon talking about Manichaeanism and never came back to the text. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I find that one encouraging. <laughs> yes, well, again, you see, yes, that's right, you see, and, um, you know, so much of what he, he was doing, obviously, he was um, he was thinking on the go, you know, I mean, mm. you, you've got to have your wits about you, and, uh, I mean, I do this all the time, somebody asks a question, and I haven't really understood it, or I don't really know the answer, or, or something, um, and, you know, you, you, you say what what you is on your mind but you aren't really engaging with the person I mean that happens a lot hmm. well I see our, our time is coming near to uh, to an end so I'd like to mm -hmm. uh, ask you one last question about your last chapter and then um, on Christian Humanist Profiles we let our guests have the last word so um, mm -hmm. after that we'll, 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 we'll be coming to an end but um, in your last chapter, you focus especially on Augustine's legacy in our own day. Right. So, w what is the legacy, and why is it so complicated? Um, why is it important for modern evangelicals not to see Augustine just as some old Catholic guy or John Calvin in a toga? <laughs> well, I think we have to uh, we have to, to 
and peel away the layers of cultural distance and so on. Mm. Um, and, of course, we have to do this with the New Testament as well, you see, mm -hmm. because don't forget the New Testament is even older uh, than Augustine. So if you find Augustine a problem, um, you know, the Gospels and, and, and the letters of Paul should be even more of a problem mm. um, because you're going back too far. And I think it is extremely important uh, for us to bear in mind that uh, we don't think this about the New Testament and, and we shouldn't think this about Augustine because the God whom we serve and to whom we relate and who has entered into our lives is eternal. He's not bound by time and space. Um, that we have a, there's a commonality in, in our experience um, which uh, undergirds everything else and which is fundamentally uh, more important in the end. I mean, we've, we've got to get to that and uh, we've got to be able to transcend uh, our own limitations because, of course, we think, you know, that what we do now is, is the right thing to do. Um, but we need to be challenged by people who come from a very different background uh, to to uh, consider our own position, you know. Mm. Um, what do we share in common with these people? Um, and when if we differ from them, as we obviously do in many ways, um, is that right? Um, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, and uh, we might, for example, say that um, his attitude towards his concubine is something that we wouldn't uh, accept today, uh, fair enough. Um, but what about his belief in, in, in uh, sin and, uh, you know, the need to be born again, the need for, for, um, uh, for redemption in this way? Uh, I mean, surely we would say that that's the same uh, today as it was then. So, um, you, you know, the kind of person today who says, oh, well, you know, sin is just a, a, a way of thinking that um, people in pre-Freudian times had, but now we don't think this way anymore. Um, as Christians, we'd have to say, well, no, that's not right. Uh, you know, we resonate with somebody like Augustine in that respect. Mm. Um, even though we might, things might work out in the other. So really what I'm saying, I'm not trying to create um, a group of Augustinian fundamentalists, you know, the kind of person who... <laughs> well, you get this with Calvin, you see. You get some people who, who think that, you know, every word of Calvin has sort of come straight from the Lord and uh, you mustn't disagree with him in any way, shape, or form. Um, uh, they become groupies, you know, and uh, <laughs> of course Luther even more so. Um, uh, if you get Lutherans, you know, they 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 tend to think of Luther as the fourth person of the Trinity or something. Um, <laughs> but um, no, but that's a danger. You see, you, you right. tend to fall into that. And I think Augustine is is far enough away uh, from us that that danger is, is recedes. I mean, we're probably mm. less likely to think that way, um, and we mustn't think that way. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, uh, as the New Testament tells us, and uh, we've got to look, be, look beyond the surface, uh, you know, the container in which it comes, uh, and see the treasure inside. That's what I'm trying to bring out. Mm. Well, as I said in 
Christian Humanist Profiles interviews, we invite our guests to have the last word. So as we end this conversation, uh, what else about this book or about Augustine would you would you like our listeners to know? What would you like? What's what thought would you like to leave them with as we conclude? Um, I think what I would like to to uh, leave people with is uh, is what I wrote in the book itself. Um, mm. You know, towards the end, uh, at the very end, when I said Augustine died in the knowledge that a few days later the barbarians would enter Hippo. Uh, and he must have feared that his life's work would go up in flames. Um, he left no no earthly legacy. I mean, there's no, there's nothing there. If you go to Hippo today, you're not going to find any uh, memorial to him or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, everything that we have uh, is in his writings, and uh, he had no way of knowing, of course, what their influence would be. Um, mm. And I said, uh, in spite of all the many things that separate us from Augustine and make our lives so very different on the surface, we can still hear his voice and feel his encouragement as we seek to live for God in the world today. God is love, as Augustine reminds us, and those who walk in love walk with God and will be blessed by him with a reward that no earthly power can bestow. Mm. And I think summing Augustine up, that's really where we where we are. Um, that for him, the, the Trinity uh, is a Trinity of love: the Father who loves, the Son who is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit who is the love that flows between them and binds them together. Uh, and if we can concentrate on that, um, you know, God is love, and uh, and we must walk in in, in love, as John. Uh, the apostle says in the New Testament, uh, then we're in, we we understand Augustine, we're in fellowship with him, and we can overlook, uh, as love uh, oft, so often does, uh, the failings and faults uh, that we find in others. Mm. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, Dr. Bray, I've really appreciated you coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, and I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. Well, thank you very much. Well, dear listeners, that's all the time that we have for today. We've been speaking with Dr. Gerald Bray about his new book from Crossway, Augustine on the Christian Life, Transformed by the Power of God. And when the show notes for this episode post on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org, we'll have a link to Crossway's page for the book. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.